You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, culture wars in Rome as Parliament prepares to vote this week for the fifth time on gay civil unions with helpful advice from the Vatican. And Venezuela, whose government last week declared an emergency to address the country's basket case economy. The idea was to give left-wing President Nicolas Maduro the power to bypass the National Assembly, now controlled by his rivals. They've taken rather a miss to the idea. And what's in a name? Well, history, politics and pride to start with. How many of us, for example, wince at references to the British Isles or to the mainland? So what is it, the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf? We look at what a long-running terminological dispute tells us about the roots of the bitter regional tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents, Paddy Agnew in Rome, Tom Hennigan in Sao Paulo, and Michael Jansen at the Syrian Peace Talks in Geneva. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. First to Rome and our correspondent Paddy Agnew. Italy is the last country but one, Romania, in the EU to legalise same-sex unions. Eleven states have gone further and to legalise gay marriage, not least fellow Catholic Ireland last year. Uh, the campaign last week took to the streets. This week, counter-demonstrations are being mobilised on Family Day. Paddy, what's the mood? Has the issue caught the popular imagination? It has in the last uh, the last couple of weeks. It definitely has. Uh, obviously, if when they get people get out on the streets, it helps. But I mean, this issue has been around in in uh, Italian political life for quite some while. Uh, and this is, in fact, the fifth uh, attempt in the last uh, decade to get some form of civil union legislation through Parliament. And to cut a long story short, every time so far, uh, in some shape or form, the church has made itself felt, has intervened, and has stopped getting through. And is, the, is there a real generational split in Italy? Yes, I think it is. Um, I think if uh, the uh, Parliament this time, the Senate, uh, uh, rejects this legislation, you'll be in a situation where the governing class of the Parliament are simply behind the country. Uh, because if this was put to a referendum, uh, I think the referendum, uh, like the Irish same-sex referendum this uh, last summer, uh, would probably be uh, very much in favour. That, that's what polls are showing, anyway. Certainly, yeah. Uh, what what has confused this debate here is that it's, it's uh, one clause uh, within this civil union legislation is the so-called stepchild adoption, uh, which basically allows uh, the non-biological parent to adopt the child, the couple's child. And the no side of the fence has played that one up a lot because they know that an awful lot of Italians um, don't necessarily feel uh, comfortable with gay adoption. And it's all tied in with the fact that a number of gay couples are using surrogacy to, to ha- have a child. Isn't that right? And surrogacy remains illegal in Italy. That's right, yeah. That's absolutely... And the, the point about that is, though, that um, the promoters of the bill would argue, and I think they've got a point, that, you know, these are um, secondary issues in the bill, and the bill is essentially to establish something which exists in a lot of other Western European countries, as, as you pointed out, uh, you know, which are basically uh, some sort of uh, guarantees for, uh, for couples, heterosexual, unmarried, heterosexual and homosexual couples. And indeed, last year, didn't the European Court of Human Rights find against Italy on this issue? 
I did indeed. Uh, not uh, well, one of the reasons why this has been promoted, but it's been promoted. I'd like to say promoted by the government, but the point about it is, it is promoted by the government and then not promoted by the government in the sense that uh, it encouraged a private member's bill, the Senator Chirina, and this bill uh, bears her name. Uh, and uh, last Friday, Prime Minister Matteo Renzi said that you know uh, you can talk about it as much as you like, but we've got to have some sort of legislation on on uh, civil unions. Uh, at the same time, he hasn't obviously he hasn't enforced the party whip in the vote, and it's a secret ballot, uh, which would which obviously uh, worries the yes side defence. They feel there'll be a lot of people uh, will use the secret ballot to vote against. And and the the parties are, are divided. It's not only the ruling PD party, which is left of centre, which is allowing a free vote. Isn't Berlusconi allowing a free vote in his party? Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, the, the this thing is a completely transversal div, uh, div, uh, divisory factor in the sense that uh, not just uh, there's not just an element of the the uh, Catholic elements in the uh, Democratic Party that are going to vote against, but there are also uh, elements in in the right. Uh, for Italia, which will vote in favour. So it, it, it's a very unclear vote at the moment. And it's very unclear what. It, it also, uh, it's even even a, a protest, the protest movement, uh, uh, the the Five Star protest movement, who have a, a lot of votes. They uh, say that as the bill stands, we'll vote for it, no problem. But if you start messing about and changing things, and in particular if we remove the stepchild adoption clause, we won't vote for it. So it's a very confused situation we're going into. They won't vote for it if it if the stepchild is remo- rem- adoption is removed. Exactly. What they're saying is if you... They see that as a weakening of the legislation, and if in right. any way you weaken it, we're not going to vote for it. And is it likely, I mean, in, 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 in sort of informed tallies of the parliamentary parties, uh, is it likely to be passed? There's no answer to that, Paddy. There's simply no answer to that. It's a very confused situation. Um, and in, and one of the... the um, uh, Prime Minister Renzi, in a way, has set the tone for it because he's, you know, he's encouraged the legislation up to a point and then he doesn't encourage it. So people are very careful about, well, yes, I'm in favour or not necessarily in favour of it. So there's a, there's a lot of yeah, of duplicity on the part of uh, a number of the politicians. They're not saying exactly what they're going to do because... Uh, you are in a country where the Catholic vote is still very important, where you have, uh, you know, Pope Francis last week um, speaking, entering the debate and saying, you know, well, there must be no confusion between God's design for the family and any other type of union, you know. No, uh, and, and when he does that, you know, he intervenes in politics. I mean, he intervened in politics uh, last uh, autumn when he complained about how the uh, mayor of Rome had turned up at uh, his uh, during his visit to the United States, uh, and he said, you know, I didn't invite him. And if he did, his he said he said in a very angry way on his plain press conference, he said, I didn't invite him. Is that clear? Is that clear? And if he did, uh, Marina, the mayor, was out of office within a month. But that was that was a far right mayor, isn't that right? No, no, he was a centre left mayor. Oh, he no. The point about him was he was the mayor who had introduced his own version, his own register of civil unions uh, in in Rome, uh, a register of civil unions which was subsequently overturned by the the the, the city prefect. But, but in so doing, he'd certainly annoyed the Vatican. And other members of the hierarchy in in Italy have been much more uh, vociferous and have called for people to join the demonstrations on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. The 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 important point of the demonst they keep the church keeps on telling us that the the Vatican keeps on telling us that the demonstration uh, this weekend's demonstration is not uh, organised by the hierarchy in any shape or form. It's organised by um, 
the, the Catholic faith themselves and Catholic lay movements. To a certain extent, that is true, but only to a certain extent. Clearly, this is uh, their response to it. I should say this, though, Paddy, in relation to the, the, the Pope Francis's version of this, is I, think, I don't think Pope Francis um, is uh, vigorously opposed to um, civil unions in the sense of that he would acknowledge that um, uh, same-sex couples, uh, unmarried heterosexual couples, are, should have some form of legal protection. What he and the entire Catholic world are terrified of is that this legislation, if you look at it, uh, it gets quite close to sort of uh, equiparating, uh, you know, saying that marriage, uh, the civil union is the same as marriage. And that's the one thing that the Catholic Church cannot accept in any, in any shape or form. The can, as, as far as Catholic teachings is concerned, be no equiparation between uh, civil union and marriage. And, and of course, the idea that it might open the door to legalising surrogacy. Well, it's the thin end of the wedge in relation to uh, same-sex. As far as they're concerned, they're big terrors. Thin end of the wedge in relation to same-sex marriage and uh, surrogate motherhood. Thank you very much, Paddy. And so to Venezuela, where the plunge in oil prices is creating huge problems for the socialist government of Nicolas Maduro, a former bus driver who took over after the death of his mentor Hugo Chavez in, in 2013, and which is now faced by a right-wing dominated assembly. It voted 107 to 54 on Friday last against his emergency decree and has vowed to remove him from office. Now, the IMF has said policy distortions have combined with the oil price drop to create an expected 18% economic contraction over 2015 and 16, the third sharpest in the world. Tom Hennigan, ordinary Venezuelans are facing huge shortages, massive queues for basics and runaway prices, 720%, uh, according to one figure which I saw. Do they blame this on Maduro? He, his people say it's a result of economic war by enemies of the country. What's the public mood? Uh, well, the public had a chance to um, take their own verdict on Maduro in December, and uh, they voted in, as you mentioned there, the new opposition-dominated National Assembly. And they didn't just win that election, they absolutely routed um, the, the ruling Socialist Party to take over two-thirds of the seats in the, in the National Assembly. So, and, they, and they did it across all sectors of Venezuelan society. So even amongst the uh, poor uh, Venezuelans who are the backbone of support for the political movement of Hugo Chavez, now led by Maduro, uh, they lost um, They lost heavily amongst those poor voters for the first time since Chavez was first elected president back in 1998. And as you say, the government um, have, as always under Chavismo, um, blamed all their in, um, problems on an alliance of internal oligarchs, you know, the, the bourgeoisie, as they're always um, referred to working in alliance with um, the evil empire, the United States to the north, uh, or at times with uh, the U.S.'s closest ally in the region, Colombia, um, internal saboteurs. But those sort of uh, appeals to uh, populism, which are popular still in many parts of uh, South American societies, um, are increasingly um, falling on deaf ears amongst Venezuelans. They're just fed up now. Chavismo has been in charge of the country since early 1999. They've spent all that time in power, most of us anyway, enjoying a huge oil bonanza. Oil was under $10 a barrel 
when Hugo Chavez uh, was sworn in, and then it shot up over 100 for most of the time that he was president. And now Venezuelans are realizing that that huge uh, bounty was just squandered, and they're not blaming outsiders anymore. They're now blaming the Socialist Party and President Maduro. But there's an, so there's an acceptance, if you like, of the need for emergency measures, but not particularly Maduro's medicine. Exactly, and that was when the opposition um, uh, MUD alliance um, voted against granting these emergency uh, decree powers. They said, look, you know, number one, your government has not been um, upfront with, with neither us nor the wider population about what the situation is. Venezuela now very infrequently releases uh, any kind of official statistics, whether it's inflation, GDP, growth, um, anything like that. And then even when those numbers are released, they're often mistrusted by analysts and academics who are saying that they're you know, essentially fiddling the figures to mask just how bad the situation is. And so the, the National Assembly said, look, you know, number one, you do not accept that your policies up to now are responsible for this crisis. Um, and number two, you're not even telling us exactly what is going on within the economy. So therefore, we just cannot trust you with even more powers to resolve the situation that you yourselves have created but deny any responsibility for. And critically, as you said, it's an oil-based economy depending uh, on crude oil for 96% of its hard currency revenue. And is that a, a, a reality that means that actually nothing can be done at the moment? I mean, the, the fall in the value of, of oil is, is uh, catastrophic. Is, is it reached the point where um, Venezuela's economy is, is irreparable? It's, many people believe it is getting to that stage because it's not only that it is completely dependent on oil for its export revenue, but that export revenue has to pay for a huge amount of its food consumption and other basic necessities like medicine. And one of the things that uh, Hugo Chavez said when he came to power was, I'm going to lessen our economy's dependence on oil. But unfortunately, the model he chose was expropriating private property, land, nationalizing industries. In this, he was advised by a kind of a motley crew of Cuban advisors who, you know, having wrecked their own country's economy, then came to Venezuela to advise them on how to run their economy, allied with a lot of European left-wing academics who left academia, came down to Venezuela, were courted, paid very... Uh, kind of um, generous consulting fees and um, combined together with massive corruption within the Chavez administration, they have all not only um, left the country more dependent on oil for its revenue, but they've destroyed its, uh, Venezuela's productive capacity. So Venezuela was, um, when Chavez came to power, spending around $15 billion a year on food imports. Before the price of oil dropped, it was spending $60 billion a year on food imports. And now that it can't afford that anymore, it can't produce enough food on its own. So there really is a, a, a critical situation now where if the oil price does not go back up, Venezuela is going to have to pick between paying its debts or defaulting in order to keep food consumption going for uh, the local population. But that does mean that, you know, it'll be pushing itself further into financial pariah status in, in the eyes of, of global markets. And clearly to approach either uh, um, solution, uh, political consensus is required. And, and Maduro uh, had, doesn't clearly have the confidence of the National Assembly, um, whose leaders have said they want to kick him out. Um, is, there, is there a political gridlock or are they able to kick him out? 
they are able to call a recall election. Um, if they can get up the votes in the National Assembly, they can say that we want to have essentially a referendum on whether Maduro sees out the rest of his term or not. And opinion polls would show that if they go down that route, that uh, Maduro would uh, lose his, his mandate. And the problem with that is, is that within uh, Chavismo, there has always been a uh, undemocratic element that has said, look, if, if popular votes go against us, we're, our loyalty is to the revolution, not to popular mandates, and the revolution will in, you know, survive by other means. And Chavismo has always um, held out that threat, and it's never really needed to, because of its popular um, electoral appeal up until now, being able uh, have to make that decision. But uh, Maduro did say that he was not going to um, accept a defeat in the midterms in December. And then after he was crushed, he accepted um, that defeat under a lot of pressure. We understand now, particularly from Brazil, a close regional ally, that he represent, that he respects democracy. But if there is a, an appeal uh, or a vote to, to uh, repeal the rest of his mandate, there could be significant elements within the military and within um, Chavismo that could basically uh, provoke a constitutional crisis by trying to overturn that verdict against Maduro. And the opposition know that, but they do seem to be increasingly deciding that the, that the situation demands that Maduro go. So it could be a very, very tense year politically in Venezuela. And tell me, how is the country viewed now uh, in the region? Um, and even by left-leaning governments, I imagine there's very little sympathy. Well, there, there is very little sympathy. And, you know, I, I understand that the ruling party in Venezuela is called the Socialist Party and that it is closely allied with uh, Communist Cuba um, and that, that there has been a significant left-wing element in Chavismo um, over the 17 years it's been in power. But really, at its heart, Chavismo is just old-school South American populism, and populism in South America has been a tool of both left and right. And Chavez, in many ways, um, um, himself personally uh, encapsulated this. You know, the, the military officer who tried to come to power with a coup and then went on a drunken spending spree during his time in power on this country's oil wealth, uh, redistributing that wealth which was electorally very successful, but like a lot of South America populists, they're good at redistributing wealth when that wealth is easy to capture, whether it's uh, food um, uh, exports, uh, commodities, or oil. And Venezuela has been through this before, where it's had, you know, very uh, elaborate um, periods of spending growth when it was called, um, you know, the Saudi Arabia of South America in the 70s. And what happens is that once the oil price collapses, it all comes tumbling down. And it's much more, I would say, a failure of Latin American populism than it is a failure of a genuine socialist experiment. Thank you very much, Tom. An exonym is a name in the English language for a place or a toponym which does not follow the local usage, the endonym. The Arab Gulf is an exonym, the Persian Gulf an endonym. History is on the side of the Iranians, Michael Jansen. Iran insisted that be called the Persian Gulf and banned publications that failed to use that name. And the United Nations seems to support the Persian claim. Researchers say that 2,500 years of history and up to 1,200 kilometres of coastline justified the designation. Well, um, 
it may justify the designation. And in fact, in those 2,500 years of history, one of the great Arab writers and uh, travelers, Ibn Battuta, referred to the, the Gulf as the Persian Gulf. But in the 1960s, there was the rise of Arab nationalism. And Arab nationalism brought about a feeling of possessiveness of Arab land and water. And so uh, the Arabs started talking about the Gulf as the Arab Gulf. And this was support, uh, this was begun in Egypt, actually, under uh, President Nasser. And then the Ba'ath Party, which was uh, a rival of Arab nationalism, which was Nasser's party, uh, also adopted the usage of the Arab Gulf. And it became uh, widespread, uh, it attained widespread use in the Gulf region. Uh, people these days who don't want to upset either side just refer to the area as the Gulf. The bad relations between the Iranians or Persians and the Arabs uh, began rather early, and uh, they uh, were tensions and rivalries and anger was uh, fanned in 1802 by the attack by the Wahhabi Saudis on the Shia shrines in Iraq. And after that attack, um, they, uh, Saudis eliminated many other Shia shrines in Saudi Arabia. And um, this uh, outraged the Sunnis, uh, outraged some Sunnis and the Shias, uh, particularly the Shias in Iran. And uh, relations between Iran and the Arabs, particularly the Saudis, have been strained for years. Um, there was the incident in 1987 when Iranian um, pilgrims at the pilgrimage uh, at Hajj in Mecca uh, created some disturbances uh, shouting political slogans which is forbidden during the pilgrimage and then uh, there was trouble with the Saudi police and a stampede and 400 people were killed the majority of them being Iranian pilgrims um, there was also, um, again, tensions this past year in, between Saudi Arabia and Iran because of a stampede, again, during the pilgrimage, in which at least 400 Iranians were killed, as well as another 800 or so other pilgrims. Um, the big problem has been uh, that the Iranians have um, resented the rise of Arab nationalism and Arab claims on the Persian Gulf. And part of the issue also relates, surely, to the suggestion which causes great resentment among Iranians that they are Arab in some way. And it's, so it's very important, the designation from, from, from that point of view, almost as important perhaps as the Shia-Sunni divide? I think so. I mean, the, the, the Iranians are... Indo-Aryans, whereas the Arabs are Semites. Uh, so there is a basic uh, ethnic difference between the two. Uh, another issue which has disturbed the Arabs, particularly the Arabs of the Gulf, was the Iranian land grab, or else you would call it an island grab, 
1971 of the three strategic uh, Strait of Hormuz Islands, which lie off uh, both the, Iran- the Iranian coast and the Gulf Coast, the Arab Gulf Coast. And um, uh, these islands uh, initially or ha- used to belong to Sharjah, and to Ras al-Khaimah, and the islands are called Abu Musa and the Greater and Lesser Toms. And as I say, they are very strategic. They dominate the shipping through the, the Gulf, and the Iranians snatched them in 1971, uh, just as the British were starting to withdraw from the, the Gulf states, the crucial Gulf states, which eventually became the United Arab Emirates. Of course, the British have had their finger in this pie too. At one stage, uh, the, a British uh, newspaper referred to uh, the Gulf as the the Britain Sea. I gather that didn't last. Uh, and then, after the nationalisation by Iran of its oil, uh, they started to refer to the Strait, the the Gulf, as as the Arab uh, Gulf. Yes, I'm sure that this probably upset the Iranians a great deal. Uh, the other thing which has strained relations, of course, was the Iranian Revolution, which took place between 1978 and 1979, when, when the Shah was uh, driven from power. And uh, the UN report to which you refer talked about the imposed war on Iran by Iraq, at that time, which took place in 1980. And the war was actually uh, sparked by uh, pro-Iranian Shia Iraqis who tried to assassinate Saddam Hussein and also his um, close aides. So uh, this also created a great deal of difficulty and um, antagonism. And one of the things that the Iranians were particularly outraged about was that the majority of soldiers in the Iraqi army at that time were Arab Shias who identified with Iraq rather than with Iran as Shias. Now, to cut a long story short, how would you think that the Irish Times has got to refer to this, uh, to the Gulf? Uh, probably the Gulf. <laughs> now, you're, you're in Geneva for the opening of the Syrian peace talks. Um, have the Iranians and the Saudis arrived? And, and what do you see as the prospects over the next few days? Uh, as far as I know, uh, nobody has arrived yet. I think there are some uh, people from the opposition who are here who are meeting together, and I mean, and, and the people from the opposition I mean who are here are. Um, independence not um, attached to the Saudi delegation or to any other delegation. Uh, I know that there are uh, people from the, the Syrian uh, civil society here and also some women's groups who are supposed to be, according to the UN mediator, Stefan de Mastura, included in the talks. So we will have to wait and see what happens tomorrow and the next day about arrivals and also um, who is coming exactly and who will be invited because de Mastura did not issue the invitations formally until today. Thank you very much, Michael. That's great. That's all today. Thank you for listening and my thanks to Paddy Agnew, Tom Hennigan and Michael Jansen and to producer Declan Conlon and Gary White on sound. And you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.